He needs no introduction here. This is Rafael Cruz coming to bring us the word on our journey through the book of Genesis. Come right on, brother. We're ready for you. God bless you. Well, praise God. Praise God. I, uh, as uh, you know, Pastor Allen has been doing an exegetical teaching through Genesis. And he asked me to uh, just introduce Joseph to you. I know that he's going to be spending probably several weeks unpacking Joseph. So I just want to give you an overview of probably the man most closer than anyone else resembling Jesus in the Bible. And in order to understand really what Joseph is all about, we're going to have to spend a couple of minutes looking at Jacob. And you know, although God had always prophesied that the that prophesied to Rebekah that the elder shall serve the younger when Jacob and Esau were born. Uh, nevertheless, they decided he needed to help God. <laughs> and so we find that uh, it's not coincidental that Jacob was named Jacob, which means deceiver. Jacob was a conniving man. You know, when he was born, he was hanging on to Esau's heel, and uh, he was a supplanter. So, even though Esau was the firstborn, first of all, Jacob goes and uh, buys Esau's birthright with a pot of lentils. And uh, how many of us have been given up things just because of some temporary want of our body? And then, you know, he then and his mother connive for him to make Jacob, make uh, his father think that he was really Esau. And he stole the firstborn blessing. You know, Galatians 6, 7 is what's called the law of the harvest. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Of course, we know after Esau realizes he's being deceived twice, he wants to kill Jacob. And so his mother said, you better run. So Jacob takes off towards the land of Rebekah to try to find a wife. And uh, so he meets the master deceiver. If you think Jacob was the deceiver, he met his match with Laban. And you know, know, whatsoever you reap, you're going to sow. You know, so be careful what kind of seed you're planting into the ground because it's going to bring a crop. So Jacob meets Rachel, and he falls in love with Rachel. And uh, so he wants to marry Rachel, and here comes this uh, 
conniver and said, well, I'll tell you what, you work for me for seven years, and I'll give you Rachel. And he gladly works because he's madly in love with this young girl. And then comes the marriage. And, you know, with the marriage, they got a veil, and he goes and marries and finds out he didn't marry Rachel at all. He married Leah, who was the ugly duckling, you know. <laughs> and so he begins complaining, and the conniver says, well, work for me another seven years, and I'll give you Rachel also. And, you know, he ends up being deceived time after time. And uh, the Bible says that Laban changed his wages ten times. But, you know, we have to realize, before Jacob went to see Laban, he has an encounter with God. And that encounter changes him from being a conniver to surrendering his life to Jesus, to God. And actually, he did meet Jesus. And so he has a vision in a place that he later all called Bethel, the house of God. And what he found is he saw a ladder going up to heaven, and he saw angels ascending and descending, ascending and descending, and the order is very important. You see, our worship ascends to his presence, and his presence comes down to us. So our worship ascends, and his presence descends. And when his presence descends, it leads you to worship. So this is what I call the holy circle. Worship leads you to his presence, and his presence leads you to worship. Psalm 1611 says, in his presence there is fullness of joy, delights forevermore at his right hand. So Jacob has a divine encounter with God, and he's transformed, and he's no longer a conniver. But he still has to reap what he sowed. And he's troubled with a conniver for 20 years. But I'll tell you, and there's something else that happens here that is important that we mention. Jacob says, basically surrenders his life to the Lord at this point in Bethel. And as we sang a minute ago, Lord, make me your vessel. Make me an offering. So Jacob comes to that point in his life. And so he's no longer a conniver. But like I said, you still have to pay the consequence. So uh, Jacob now is serving for 20 years. And the one thing that I, he did in that first encounter, he said, Lord, of everything you give me, I will give you a tithe. Now, this is almost 500 years before the law. Now, before that, his grandfather, Abraham, Abraham, 
when he defeated the five kings, he came and met with Melchizedek, which I believe is a Jesus that he met. And what did Abraham do? He gave a tithe to Melchizedek. Now we're talking over 500 years before the law. So the tithe is something that God ordained long before the, the law. So you do not have an excuse to say, well, we are not under the law. We're under grace. We don't have to tithe. Now, tithe is a fundamental concept of Scripture. But you see, unfortunately, there are so many pastors that teach that tithe is an obligation. And people feel under bondage to tithe. There are others that love to use, and I know that the Bible uses this terminology in uh, Malachi chapter 3, but I hate this terminology. You need to pay your tithe. You'll never hear me using that term because the tithe belongs to God. That's a lie. The tithe does not belong to God. A hundred percent of what you have belongs to God. And when you realize that all you have belongs to God, giving a tithe is easy. When you realize that a tithe is really the highest form of worship, you're offering the fruit of yourself, the fruit of your effort as worship unto God. And when you start seeing the tithe as a supreme act of worship, you will become a hilarious giver. You will give joyfully unto the Lord. So begin, and this is nothing to do with Joseph, but I felt it was important that I tell you this. Tithing is an act of worship. Rejoice every time God gives you an opportunity to give. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Hallelujah. And so God now changes the name of Joseph from deceiver to Israel, a prince. He's now become a prince for God. And you know, and we don't have time today, but one of the very fundamental steps in covenant is a change of name. And I just give you a tidbit. When his grandfather Abraham Uh, cut covenant with God in Genesis chapter 15 and a few chapters afterwards God changed his name and God took part of his name the name of Yahweh in the Hebrew is Jude Hey Bad Hey Jude Hey Bad Hey God took one of those Hey's and put it in the middle of the name Abraham and he became Abraham, and his name was changed from blessed father to father of many nations. And God forced Abraham to confess, hey, hi, how are you? Who are you? Oh, I'm the father of many nations. And he forced him to confess, I'm the father of many nations long before he had that child. See what you speak. 
It's going to become a reality. So it is that ratification of the covenant. The covenant that was made with Abram was then ratified with Jacob or with Isaac, and now it's ratified with Jacob. So Jacob stopped being a deceiver. But you know, uh, in his second encounter, when he's coming out back away from Laban 20 years later, he wrestles God, and that's when God really ratifies his covenant. But he's still playing favorites. That's the one thing he could never get over. You know, he's still playing favorites. Rachel was still the love of his life, and Joseph ends up being his 11th son. So Joseph is a little kid. I'm sure he spent more time with Joseph than with any of the other children because he's cherished being around Rebecca. So I'm sure Joseph, as a young little boy, heard all the stories about his great-grandfather Abraham and how in Genesis 15, chapter 6 says, Abraham, believe God. Amen. Believe God. And it was accounted unto him for righteousness. And you know, Anne and I were talking about it yesterday. It's not only by grace in the New Testament. It was also by grace in the Old Testament. Abraham believed God. What did he have to do? Silch. Just believe. Zero works. Zero works. Abraham was saved by grace. Purely by grace. Still in the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, I was also sharing with Anne, as you read through chapter 15, which is a chapter of covenant in the Bible, it says, I think it's verse 13, that after Abraham cut the pieces, God put him to sleep. And God by himself walked through the pieces ratifying the covenant between him and Abram while Abram slept. Abram had nothing to do with it. It was all purely by grace. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord God. But here is Jacob still expressing favoritism towards Joseph. And let's talk about the coat of many colors. And I want to tell you, this was not just a pretty coat. This was not just something that brought jealousy because it's a fancy coat. In the Hebrew, this is called a coat of me'il. And this was a coat of authority. Let me tell you what Jacob was doing. He was indicating that he was giving the firstborn blessing to Joseph. Joseph is the 11th son. Reuben was the firstborn. But with this coat, he is indicating to all his other sons, I am giving the firstborn blessing to Joseph. And I will corroborate that with scripture in just a minute. Number one, firstborn blessing. As you well know, the firstborn got a double portion. Well, this is why his brothers wanted to kill him. I mean, think about it. 
I mean, I know about the two dreams and Joseph dreaming that all 11 other brothers are going to bow to him and that then even his father and mother will bow to him. But, you know, they could excuse that. Oh, just a kid with some crazy ideas. And they could have dismissed that. But let me tell you what they couldn't dismiss. Joseph ruling over them. That's why they wanted to kill him. Not because it was a pretty color robe, but because his father was saying, I'm going to make him rule over you. And, you know, you look at Genesis 48, 22. It says, moreover, I have given unto thee, talking to Joseph, one portion above my brethren. One more portion, a double portion. Remember, instead, when Jacob is handing out the blessings, he laid one hand on Ephraim, his right hand on Ephraim, and his left hand on Manasseh, and he blesses them both. When they enter into the land, what do they get? They get two parcels. They get a double portion. That's the firstborn blessing. And then even more clearly, in Genesis 49, 26, he says, the blessings of thy father, Jacob, shall be on the head of Joseph. So, what the brethren decide to kill him. I mean, this guy is stealing the first blessing from Reuben and taking it for himself. We're going to have this dreamer rule over us? No, let's kill him. And, you know, they throw him into the pit, and then here comes this. What a, quote, coincidence. There was a, you know, caravan of Midianites coming by. How many of you know that there ain't no coincidences with God? So, hey, why kill him? We ain't going to get nothing for killing him. Let's just sell them to the Midianites. And we're going to get some money for it. So they get 20 pieces of silver for it. You see the parallel? Jesus was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. I guess the price of a slave had a little bit of inflation between the time of Joseph and the time of Jesus. But, you know, so Reuben was away when he had been with the with a, with a sheep and while they sell him. So Reuben comes back and uh, what they do, oh, we sell him. And by the way, two of the coins are yours. That's your portion of the 20 coins. And so now Joseph finds himself, do you know that he has been treated unjustly? He is about to move into a long, refining road. And he doesn't even know what's coming after him. I mean, he doesn't know what's going on. And I'll tell you what. Many of us have found ourselves on a refining road. And when you're on a refining road, you need to rest on God's promises. Otherwise that road will overwhelm you. And uh, 
Look at the word of God, Philippians 1.6. Being confident of this very thing, that he which has begun a good work on you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And 1 Thessalonians 5.24 says, Faithfully see that called you, that will also do it. So, think about it. Just put yourself in the place of Joseph. Joseph, from being the pamper kid, now all of a sudden finds himself of a slave, as a slave. They not only took his coat, and now the 11 become the deceivers. They rip the coat. They kill a goat and cover it with blood in the... And, and, you know, let's go back to the deceiver for a minute. Do you remember how the deceiver deceived his father with the skin of a goat over his... Now they are using the blood of a goat to deceive Jacob. Law of the harvest, and all over again. So, but let's just think about it. Let's put ourselves in the place of Joseph. What is he thinking about when not only has he been stripped of his coat, he's been stripped of his clothing, he's now in chains naked on this caravan towards Egypt. And what's in his mind? Bitterness? You think he's bitter against his brothers? I bet you he was. You think he's angry? He's fuming mad. You think he's disappointed? Disappointed not only with his brothers, he's probably disappointed with God. I mean, let's be real. You think fear is entering his mind? What's going to happen to me? I mean, this is a totally new experience for Joseph. So, after a while, you know, realize the road from Hebron to Egypt is about 500 miles. It's going to take a while to get there. So he's got a long time to think. And he, I'm sure, spent some of that time thinking, what's going to happen to me? Oh, me, oh, my, oh. Have you ever been there? But, you know, you got to realize that Joseph, as the pampered son, spent a lot of times alone with Joseph. And remember, Joseph had two encounters with God. So Joseph is no longer a deceiver. So I am sure Joseph spent a lot of time. I mean, Jacob spent a lot of time talking to Joseph about his great-grandfather, Abraham. And uh, just talking about how God had dealt with Abraham. How God had dealt with Isaac, his grandfather. That in a place that was arid, he raised a crop a hundred times what he, what he had picked up. How God had dealt with Jacob and personally had two encounters with him. So I am sure Jacob spent a lot of time with Joseph, more than with any of the other brothers, talking, teaching him about the faith of Abraham. And so look at what the Word of God says. And gosh, it's so bright I can't even read it. Oh, it's 2 Corinthians 10. 
For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing every thought, every thought, every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. See, we need to realize that the battles we face are spiritual battles. There is an adversary. And so we got to fight the spiritual battles in the spiritual realm. You need to apply this prescription from 2 Corinthians 10. And bring every thought, every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. And the obedience of Christ, when he went to the cross, gave us total victory. And that's why he could cry out, it is finished. He did it all. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Glory. Now, again, Jacob knew the scriptures. Could he begin to meditate on Isaiah 53 and see in the prophecies of Isaiah about the suffering Messiah? Could Jacob see that God knows what he's going through? Could he find comfort in seeing that God knows exactly where he's going through? You know, Jesus said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. As a matter of fact, God had said that before to Joshua. As what I was with Moses, I will be with you. I shall never leave you. I shall never forsake you. You're never alone. If you're a Christian, God is with you every step of the way. And you need to rely on that fact. And that will bring you comfort. So, what about his dreams? Didn't God give him those dreams? So, all of a sudden... Jacob begins, Joseph begins to be encouraged as he meditates on the scriptures. And finally, he comes to the conclusion that his faith is the only way to survive. Now, I am certain of this because we see the consequences as a result of this decision. And I am convinced that he made this decision while he was in that caravan on his road to Egypt. I ain't going to survive in this unless I put all my trust in God. Unless I totally surrender myself to him. Trust in God. Be totally rooted upon his word. You know, he knew God's promises to his grandfather, Abraham. Let's review those promises. First he said, I will make you a great nation. And then he says, I will make your name great. I will bless you and you will be a blessing. And let me tell you something. And get this down into your spirit. The reason God blesses you is so you can become a channel of blessings. That's the whole purpose that you will become a channel of blessings. And so when 
God speaks to us in Galatians 3.29 and says, If you are Christ, you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. The promise is, I will bless you and you will be a blessing. God wants you to be a channel of blessing and have him flow in and through you to those around you. Hallelujah. Then he says, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And I'll tell you, we have seen this clearly in how nations have treated the land of Israel. Praise God that America has for centuries stood behind the people of Israel, even before the nation of Israel was created in 1948. And God has blessed America because we have stood unconditionally for the nation of Israel. And we cannot stop. We cannot stop remaining unconditional for the people of Israel. They are still God's chosen people. And we need to honor God by honoring them and standing firm with them. They're still the apple of God's eyes. And by the way, I'm just going to take another little parenthesis. Because, you know, there are those that unfortunately in different parts of Christendom talk about replacement theology and say that the church has become the Israel of God and Israel has been forsaken. That is heresy. That is heresy. God put a blindfold. God put a veil upon Israel for one reason, that you and I could be saved. Because when Jesus came, he said, I am come for the house of Israel. And so God put a veil over Israel, and Israel's rejection of the Messiah opened the door for the gospel to be preached to the Gentiles. But the veil will be removed in the last days. Read Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. And so we still need to pray, as Psalms 122 verse 6 tells us, we need to continue to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And it says they will prosper those who do it. So he says then, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So, We realize that, uh, you know, he became fully persuaded. I was talking to someone last night, and I, and I was telling this person, you want to learn about faith. You need to study Romans chapter 4. I don't think there is a chapter in Scripture that more describes what faith is all about. That Romans chapter 4. And I want to share with you two or three scriptures that talk about Abraham. And it says, beginning with verse 19, that Abraham, being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now about a hundred years old, nor the deadness of Sarah's womb. Sarah was about nine. Remember, when Abraham was 75 years old, 
God made him a promise. Out of your loins will come a great nation. 25 years have passed. And it says that he considered not. Man, I'm 100 years old. My wife is 90 years old, and she never could have a baby anyway. He considered not his own body, not the deadness of Sarah's womb. And then it says, he staggered not at the promise of God. You know, there are people that say, God said it, and I believe it, and it's settled. No, 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 it's not that way. God said it, and it is so. It is so. Whether you believe it or not, it is so. Now, you ain't going to get anything for it if you don't believe it. And the way I like to say it, God said it, it is so, and I believe it, and I cling on to it with bulldog faith. By the way, that didn't come from me. I learned that from Gloria Copeland. (laughs) But look at the next verse. And being fully persuaded. Fully persuaded that what God said, he was also able to accomplish. We got to become fully persuaded. Are you fully persuaded that what God promised, God's going to do? You see, when you are fully persuaded, the devil can't shake you. Circumstances can't shake you. Dark clouds can't shake you. But you've got to become fully persuaded. But I want you to note the difference one more time between Joseph and Jacob. Joseph is fully trusting in God. You know, after Jacob thought that Joseph had been killed, Jacob refused to be comforted. Jacob says, I will die mourning. And, you know, Joseph is in Egypt for 22 years before he calls his father. (coughs) And his father spent 22 years mourning, refusing to be comforted, even really fought bitterly when they wanted to take now the younger brother, Benjamin, back to Egypt. What happened to his faith? It seemed like he swept his faith under the carpet. Maybe it was one of your forefathers' carpet business. (laughs) So Jacob became a bitter old man because of not trusting God. In spite of those two incredible encounters. How sad is that? But I'll tell you what. Jacob, not Jacob, Joseph became a man of integrity. If you want to learn about integrity, I encourage you to read Psalms 15. There's no other chapter in the Bible that describes better what a life of integrity is than Psalms chapter 15, especially verse 4. He, to even to his own hurt, he does not change. You do what is right, even if it costs you. That's integrity. And that is what Joseph decided his life would be. I will do what is right, 
even if it costs me. So Joseph is sold to the house of Potiphar, who is the captain uh, of Pharaoh's guard. And uh, before long, Joseph is promoted. And he's in charge of all of Potiphar's possessions. He's basically managing Potiphar's state. And, uh, and then he comes to probably one of his biggest tests, the test of purity. Potiphar's wife was a loose woman, tried repeatedly to seduce Joseph, and finally, seeing that she couldn't get anywhere, she sends all the all the servants away, and Joseph walks into their house, and Joseph is alone with Potiphar's wife, and Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him, grabs his coat, and Joseph runs away and leaves his coat behind. And notice this, for the second time, his clothing is used as evidence against him. How about that? How about that? But I'll tell you what, Proverbs 7, all of Proverbs 7 deals with sexual impurity. And Proverbs 7 talks about this whore, this harlot, this strange woman, and it says, let not thine heart decline to her ways. Go not astray in her path, for she has cast down many Many wounded, yet many strong men have been slain by her. Stay away from sexual impurity. But let me just talk to you for a minute. And let me just minister to you for a minute. If you have failed this test and have succumbed to sexual impurity, Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater than anything. And Jesus, in his love for you, let me shock you. Jesus does not condemn you. Like he didn't condemn that woman caught in the act of adultery. When he said, he who has not sinned cast the first stone. And all those Pharisees walked away one by one. And finally he's there alone with that woman. And uh, he says to the woman, where are those who condemn you? Well, there are none here. And he says to the woman, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And so if you have failed this test, don't think that you are beyond redemption. Don't stay in your pity party hiding under that guilt but Jesus has his arms outstretched towards you and says, I love you. I love you so very much. I went on the cross for you. I took every sin, including those sins of sexual impurity, for you. And by my stripes you are healed. Come before the Lord and confess your sin before the Lord and repent. And he will heal your soul. He will remove your guilt. And he will restore you. Do not walk away from here today. 
with that burden on your heart. God wants to heal your soul. Hallelujah. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord God. And then if you need to, do what Job did in Job 31.1. God says, or Job said, I made a covenant with mine eyes not to look upon a maiden. You know something? At one time in my life, many years ago, I had a problem with lust. And I applied this verse. I made a covenant with my eyes. I will not look upon anything, you know, that is sensual or something of this sort. Even to this day, I am driving down the, down the road, and you know, it seems like you cannot sell a car without having a semi-naked woman standing next to the car. <laughs> so if I'm driving down the road and I see a, a, one of those uh, billboards that has a half-naked woman without even thinking about it, my eyes turn in the other direction. I'm still looking at the road, but I'm not looking at the sign. I'm watching television, and one of those commercials come on, again with a scantily clad woman, my eyes naturally turn away from the TV. Make a covenant with your eyes, and do not allow anything impure come through the gate of your eyes, and you will find total victory. Now, again, when he is accused, Joseph is accused of, of trying to rape the wife of Potiphar. The normal, the natural, the common punishment for that was death. Now, I don't know whether Potiphar knew that his wife was a loose woman or it was just purely the favor of God. But instead of Joseph being executed... Joseph is sent to prison. You know, I have a friend of mine, pastor, that uh, he was on a plane one time, and there were serious problems with the plane. I mean, the plane was shaking all over the place, and, and there was a woman next to him, hysterical. And he turned to her and said, don't, don't fear. We're not going to die. And she looks to him and says, why do you know we're not going to die? And my pastor said, friend says, because God gave me a vision of what was, I was going to do, and I haven't done it yet. That's right. So I ain't going to die because I haven't finished what God told me to do. Amen. So, you know, you need to rest on the promises of God for your life and rebuke the lies of the enemy. So he finds favor. God had a purpose of his life. His purpose is not going to be truncated because of this woman trying to seduce him. So instead of being executed like he should have, he goes to prison. But even in the prison, God is with him. And before long, he's in charge of the whole prison. He's promoted. Now he's ruling the prison. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Think about that. That code of mail, that code of authority, has been operating all along. Amen. He first comes to the house of Potiphar. The code of authority 
spiritually is put upon him, and he's in charge of everything in the house of Potiphar. Now he's in a prison, and that same coat of many colors, even though not physically, but the coat of authority, the mantle of authority is upon him, and he's the ruler of the prison. Do you see? Do you see the hand of God, the purposes of God being manifested? And so even in the prison, God is with him. He never leaves you. He never forsakes you. Oh, I want to go back to that scripture. Because we need to look at that scripture. Psalms 23, verse 5. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. In the midst of the valley, in the midst of the battle, God puts a banquet table for you. And by the way, that table is a covenant table. It's a covenant table. God is sitting there with you at that table, communing with you, having communion with you and saying, hey, you belong to me. You belong to me. And we laugh at the enemies around you. See, you are with him. And he's greater than any enemy you could have. And uh, then you have keep continuing the tests of servanthood. He that is the greatest among you, Jesus said, must become the servant. So Joseph is actually going through a process of training for reigning. And many of you are going through a process of training for reigning. And God has a mantle over you, but you got to go through this refining process of training for reigning. That's a good phrase for you to remember when you're in the midst of the valley. And by the way, if you look at the previous verse, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, that company. Let me tell you a couple of things about Psalms 23, verse 4. Number one is the word through. If you're going through the valley, it means you're coming out the other end. You ain't staying there. And you know something? A valley is always within two mountains. You're coming out to climb another mountain. And then look at the second thing. Though I walk through the valley, doesn't say the valley of death. It says the valley of the shadow of death. A shadow can't hurt you. Shadow can't hurt you at all. As a matter of fact, a shadow is only because there is something between you and the sun. Not only S-U-N, but between you and the sun, S-O-N. Remove the obstacle between you and Jesus, and the shadow will disappear. That's just a nugget. Yeah. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Remember the parable of the talents and what Jesus said, as you have done it unto the least of these, you have done it unto me. And whatsoever you do, Colossians 3.23, do it heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men. 
Think about Paul and Silas. They are in prison. They are in chains. Their wrists, their legs are in chains. They are on the floor sitting um, in excrement, stinking place. Are they, oh me, oh my, feeling sorry for themselves? No, they are praising God. They can't lift their hands because they are in chains, but I'm sure, I'm sure they could see themselves with their hands lifted high, praising God. And you know the rest of the story. When they began praising God, the chains fall off. And it ends up that the jailer and all the house come to Jesus as a result. And what seemed to be trouble became a great victory for the Lord. So stop looking at the circumstances. You know, I remember a friend one time saying, Hey, how are you, Charlie? And Charlie's saying, well, under the circumstances. And the question is, what are you doing under there? You're supposed to be above the circumstances. But the question is, how great is your God? Is your God greater than your circumstances? And if your God is greater than your circumstances, why are you letting your circumstances overwhelm you? You see, we got to have a heavenly vision. We got to see beyond what the environment looks like. And we all encounter these prison-like experiences. We all go through them. But the question is, how are we going to respond to them? And that will determine the outcome. You can either respond to them in faith or you can respond to them in fear, and the outcome will be different. Hallelujah. I want to take another parenthesis because this is very important. If you look at 2 Chronicles chapter 6, all of 2 Chronicles chapter 6 is the prayer of Solomon dedicating the temple. And it says that Solomon climbed the steps to the altar he kneeled down and he raises, he raises his hands towards heaven. And the whole of chapter 6 is Solomon's prayer of dedication of the temple. How many of you know that you are the temple? You are the temple of the Holy Ghost. The Bible says, no, you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so... Chapter 7 of 1 Chronicles begins verse 1. It says, And when Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the sacrifice. Let's look at Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I beseech you therefore, my brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. You see, that sacrifice in the altar was a dead animal. Had no choice. But Paul says, you present yourself as a living sacrifice. That means you voluntarily stepped on the altar. Wow. You voluntarily stepped on the altar. And verse 2 says, and fire came down from heaven 
and consume the sacrifice. You are the sacrifice that the fire of God wants to consume. Number one, that's a fire of purification. To burn all the garbage, to burn all the dross, so you can shine like pure refining gold. And number two, it's a fire of empowerment. It is a fire of anointing so that you can fulfill the promises of God for you. And then it continues. So fire came down from heaven and consumed the sacrifice. And then it says, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Again, you're the temple. You are the temple that the glory of God wants to fill. And so it goes back to that holy circle. Worship leads you to his presence, and his presence leads you to worship. And so God wants you to commit, to submit yourself, like we sang a little while ago, as a living sacrifice. Voluntarily, you let the fire of God purify you and then anoint you for his service. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Glory. And you will come out more than a conqueror to be used by God for a greater purpose. And you're going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. So now Jacob is in the prison. And here comes a baker. And here comes a cupbearer. Another scripture, I mean the King James calls him a butler. So he was the one who served wine to the king. And both of them have had a dream. And God interprets those dreams through Joseph. And both dreams come to pass exactly as Joseph told these people. The baker is hung three days later. The cupbearer goes back to serve the king, to serve Pharaoh. Now, a couple of years passed. And... uh, But, you know, think about this. God uses Joseph. And Joseph interprets perfectly well those two dreams. Do you think that encouraged Joseph? That his dreams are also going to come to pass? Now, he's he's been in jail for quite a while now. But you see, his faith is still alive. His faith is still alive. He's still a servant. And so there's a renewed spirit in Joseph. And as I said, a couple of years pass. But first, but after that, Pharaoh now has two dreams. And none of the magicians, none of the wise men of Egypt could interpret these dreams. And all of a sudden, the cupbearer remembers, hey, my ruler, my king, Pharaoh, I remember when I was in prison, there was this Jewish guy, this Hebrew, that he interpreted the dreams for me and for the baker, and it came to pass just like you said, like he said. So Pharaoh calls Joseph to the, to the Pharaoh. And now Pharaoh, Joseph comes from being in a stinking cell 
to come before the ruler of the world. Pharaoh basically was the most powerful man in the world. And so Pharaoh tells him these two dreams. And Joseph is very humble. He said, well, I can't interpret dreams, but I know who can. Do you know him? Do you know who can? And so God gives Joseph the interpretation. And he tells them there are seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. And the famine will be so great that people will forget the years of plenty. And then Joseph doesn't stop there. He says, Pharaoh, I'll tell you what you need to do. And then God gives Joseph a word of wisdom. And he says to Pharaoh, look, what you need to do is you need to find and appoint a wise man. Well, who is wiser than Joseph? Joseph is the only one who could tell this man, this king, this dream. You appoint this wise man and you have him rule over all of Egypt and be able to store enough to cover the seven years of famine. And let me ask you a question. What does it say? You store during the years of plenty so you can have for the years of famine. Let me ask you a personal question. Can you see how you can apply these principles to your finances? Or are, is, are you spending $1,000 more than you make and getting bigger and bigger and bigger into debt? And the only thing increasing in your life is the debt to all your credit cards? Or are you storing for a potential lack in the future? You know, saving is a scriptural principle. Look at the book of Proverbs, what it says about the ants. Hmm? How they store in the summer so they can have something to eat in the winter. So we need to learn from these principles that go beyond Joseph. But, uh, again... Joseph finds grace and favor. And Joseph is pro promoted to being the prime minister of Egypt, the greatest man in Egypt other than Pharaoh, or to rule over all of Egypt. He will become the deliverer of not only of Egypt, but of every other country, even of his family. Just like Jesus is the deliverer for everyone that will surrender their lives to him. No matter what you have been involved in, no matter what your bondage is, Jesus is your deliverer. I was sharing last night to a group of people how God delivered me from alcohol. I was a drunk before he, I came to Jesus. And Jesus supernaturally took alcohol out of my life. If there are any of you that are dealing with alcohol or drug addiction or who knows what, maybe gossiping is your, is your vice of, of style or whatever, Jesus can deliver you. Hallelujah. And so there is a delegation of authority. Pharaoh took off his ring, and I, I just noticed that this morning I left one F off. Off. Took off 
O-double-F, his ring, and placed it in Joseph's hands. Now, a ring was a symbol of authority in those times. Those rings were signet rings. They would press them upon clay, and if they put that on a law, it became the law of the land. If you put it on a contract, that was an unbreakable contract. That was a delegation of authority. So Pharaoh was transferring all his authority to Joseph. How many of you know Matthew 28, 18? It's called the Great Commission. Jesus said, all power, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given unto me. What are the next three words? Go ye therefore. You know what that is? That's a delegation of authority. Jesus is saying, because all power, all authority has been given unto me, therefore you go. That is a delegation of authority. Jesus has delegated all his authority to us to go in the name of Jesus. And it says that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The next thing that Pharaoh does is closes Joseph with vestures of fine linen. How many of you have read about the marriage supper of the Lamb? And we will be dressed as the bride of Christ with fine, white, fine linen, which is the vestment of the bride of Christ, the church. And then Joseph is asked to stand at the right hand of Pharaoh. That's a place of authority. The same manner Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father right now. You know why he's sitting instead of standing? Because he did it all. Because he said at the cross, it is finished. And Philippians chapter 2 verse 6 says that we are seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. See, you're also seated with him right there in the right hand of the Father. It is finished. And you need to let that drop into your spirit. He did it all. It is finished. Stop struggling and believe and rely on what Jesus has already done. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. And then he gives Joseph a new name. Safenaf Pania. And Safenaf Pania in Egyptian means he who provides of the substance of the land. Now, Jesus, one of the names of God is Jehovah Jireh, the Lord our provider. Matthew 33, but 633 actually. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Philippians 4.19, for my God shall supply all your needs. How many? All your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And then look at Jesus' new name. 
King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And our new name, as a matter of fact, I wish we didn't pronounce it Christians, but Christians. We were first called Christians in Antioch. Christians. Romans chapter 8, verses 16 and 17 says that we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. We have become one with him. Hallelujah, hallelujah. And we are sons and daughters of God. And that's why we can call him Abba, Father, Daddy, Daddy. And when you realize he's your daddy, don't you think he wants to be for you? And he is for you. Who can be against you? Now, as I said before, Pharaoh gives Joseph a Gentile bride. Well, Jesus took on a Gentile bride too. It's called the church. As I mentioned to you earlier, because of Israel's rejection of Jesus as the Messiah, God gave Jesus a Gentile wife. That's you and I. That's the church. And uh, then Pharaoh says, everyone will bow their knee before Joseph. Everyone will bow their knee before Joseph. Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. And uh, again, Pharaoh says, without Joseph shall no man lift hand or foot. Another parallel. Without Jesus, Jesus said, I am the vine, you're the branches. Without me, you can do nothing. See the perfect parallel? And then Joseph has two sons through this Egyptian wife. The firstborn is called Manasseh. And Manasseh means he who makes forget. You see, that's just to try to take all the Burdens of all those years. So, Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14 says, Forgetting what is behind and looking forth to what is ahead, I press on towards the mark for the price of the high calling in Christ Jesus. We need to forget what's behind and move on to what's ahead. And then Ephraim is the second born, and Ephraim means fruitful. Now, let me give you another little nugget. We need to be free of the past so we can move on to abundant fruitfulness. You cannot be moving to abundant fruitfulness while you're carrying all the baggage. I don't know if you remember, many years ago there was a movie where there was this priest that was coming to this a chapel that was on top of a ridge. And this priest is climbing the ridge 
with a big sack of rocks in his back. You remember that movie? And that priest is just struggling, trying to get up there with that bag of rocks, atoning for all the wrongs he had done. It's about time you let go of all that bag of rocks. Jesus already took him. Jesus already took him. So you need to let go of all that baggage and realize he did it all. Again, it is finished. Hallelujah. And so the seven years of plenty go by. Joseph is storing all this time. And now comes one year of famine. And in the second year of famine, Jacob and his family run out of food. So Jacob had heard that there's food in Egypt. So he sends all his other kids except Benjamin. Go out there and buy food for us. So they do that and uh, they come back and Joseph returns their money without knowing them. And they eat for a while. But Joseph keeps Ephraim. No, Simeon. He keeps Simeon with him and he says, hey, I'm going to keep this one here until you bring your younger brother. So the, ten bro- the nine brothers now go back and Jacob doesn't want to let go of Benjamin. No, 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 no. I've already lost Joseph. If I lose Benjamin, I will go to, to my death in tears. See, he's still mourning. So the brothers said, look, this man in Egypt said, I can't, we can't go back until Benjamin goes with us. And Jacob keeps objecting and objecting and objecting until they're practically starving. And finally, he lets Benjamin go. And Joseph is doing all of this to try to bring his brothers to repentance. And finally, when they come with with Benjamin, perhaps this scripture comes to their mind from Numbers 32, 23. Behold, you have sinned against the Lord and be sure your sin will find you out. And finally, the brothers come to repentance. And Joseph reveals himself to them. And he says to them, God sent me before you to preserve life. It was God's will that you sell me as a slave. See, sometimes while we're going through the middle of the trial, we don't realize that God has a greater purpose. And God will be glorified in the midst of it all. So now Joseph sends for his family. And they finally come and they go to Goshen. Isn't that just like God? Goshen is actually the delta of the Nile River. The most Uh, fruitful, the most fertile land in all of Egypt. And that's where the children of Israel go. That's just like God. But now, note the contrast. Jacob is still in his bitterness. He has just come to Joseph. He has seen Joseph now after 22 years. And what does Joseph say? Oh, I've now seen Joseph. I can now die in peace. He's still giving up. He's still giving up. And, uh, you know, so you see the contrast between Jacob just feeling sorry for himself 
and Joseph just trusting God under all circumstances. Now, as I said before, Jacob gives the firstborn portion to Joseph, double portion, and he takes it away from Reuben. As a matter of fact, he says to Reuben, you'll never amount to anything. And uh, Jacob dies 17 years later. And the brothers still feel that Joseph has got something against him. And Joseph said, look, as for you, you thought it against me, but God meant it unto good. And uh, so we need to learn from Jesus' servant leadership. Philippians chapter 2. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant. This is Jesus. And was made in the likeness of a man. And being found in a bastion of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. It's all by grace. Romans chapter 4, verse 16 says, It is of faith that it may be by grace. Look at Romans 5, 2. By whom we also have access by faith into his grace. Remember what kept Joseph going? His faith. And what did he find? Grace. Let me share with you a, a phrase that God gave me. Faith is the key that opens the door to God's grace. God's grace is infinite. It's there for you. How do you access it? You access it by faith. You said, the world says you have to see it to believe it. God says you got to believe it to see it. You have to believe it to see it. Faith is the door that opens the door to God's grace. So when you have been stripped of your identity, when you've been sold into slavery, when nobody knows you, when God has given you a vision, but your plan seems to be destroyed, what are you going to do? Look at what the Word of God and let the Word of God guide you. Number one, walk by faith, not by sight. And keep on walking. Proverbs 24, 16, this has become my new life verse. The righteous may fall seven times and gets up again. We all fall. We all stumble and fall. But you know something? When you fall, you got two choices. You can stay down there feeling sorry for yourself, or you can get up with twice the determination and keep moving forward, trusting God. I always choose the second. Number two, your identity is in Christ. Stop saying, I'm nothing but a sinner saved by grace. That's nowhere in the Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, But he, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us, that we may be made the righteousness of God in him, in Christ. At the cross, Jesus became who we were, that we may become who he is. At the cross, Jesus put on our filthy rags, so we may put on his robe of righteousness. 
God does not see you as a sinner saved by grace. God sees you as the righteousness of God in Christ. When you realize that, you can walk knowing that your sins are forgiven. That God is for you and not against you. And you can walk with his presence with you all the time. Number three. God is bigger than your circumstances. And I already talked about that a little while ago. If God is for you, who can be against you? Number four, agree with what God says about you. Jeremiah 29, 11, God says, I know the plans I have for you. And they are plans for good and not for evil to give you a purpose and a future. And number four, number five, declare the promises of God. Declare the promises of God. Every morning, I declare 101 promises from God to God. Every morning. And then I take communion daily as a covenant meal. Declare the promises of God. Proverbs 18.21 says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Make sure that what comes out of your mouth is life. Declare the promises of God. Well, I hope you got something out of these. I hope that these give you a foundation upon which pastor for the next few weeks will unpack Joseph verse by verse and bring new revelations of you on how Joseph really reveals Jesus to you. Let us pray, and as we pray, if you have never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, if you don't know, you heard of Jesus, or maybe you are a church member, being a church member does not make you a Christian any more than sleeping in a garage makes you a car. But if you have not surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, you know, God loved you so much that he sent his son Jesus Christ to come to this earth to live a perfect sinless life as a man, all God but as a man, to go to a cross and to take upon himself all of your sins and all of my sins. And the wrath of God was poured upon Jesus to satisfy the justice of God. And as pastor said, Jesus went to death, hell, and the grave to pay for our sins. But God victoriously raised him from the dead on the third day. And that's proof conclusive that the payment was complete. Every eye closed, please. If you have never received Jesus Christ as your Savior, I invite you to pray with me. Let's all do it together so you will make it easier for those people that are doing it for the first time. Thank you, Lord God, that you love me so much, that you send your son Jesus Christ to come to a cross and take upon himself all of my sins. And all of my sins were, were judged in the body of Jesus. And Jesus went through death, hell, and the grave as a full payment for my sins. And the proof that the payment was complete was that you raised him from the dead on the third day.
I now declare that Jesus Christ is my Lord and my Savior. Take my life, Lord, and mold it into your likeness. In the name of Jesus. Amen. If you have prayed the prayer for the first time, I will encourage you to tell Pastor. And Pastor, I turn it over to you. Thank you so much.